Guys, welcome back to the Anson's Podcast. I'm Blaine. And I'm Sam. And God willing, and the creek don't rise, this is the last of the reruns. Oh, wow. I don't think you bait the universe that way. So, universe, come at me. <laughs> In January. Just Blaine, though, not me. You'll be getting. You heard me. New episodes. Woohoo! Next week. Next week. We're really excited uh, to hit you with a whole new year. Wrapping up this one, though, we wanted to return to an interview that we did with James Baxter. Yeah, and really, it's kind of an interesting time to be airing this particular episode because it's an invitation into a rhythm and discipline of some self-denial, some asceticism. And there's probably plenty of people out there that feel like they've been enjoying the holiday beverages and the... uh, candy cane mocha frappuccinos and the pie, myself included, a little bit too much. Um, But this isn't a New Year's resolution episode, nor is this a shaming episode as to you sort of overdone it and now you have to bust out those pants you swore you would never have to fit into again since high school, but good thing you kept them. My recommendation, buy some pants from Dewar. They stretch. You don't have to worry about it. Yeah, but the knees still wear out. That's your problem. I think... That the invitation in this episode really would be to listen for the fact that God is available. I think that's uh, when we first aired it, we ran it with the title that there is a way to live. And Mm -hmm. we were pushing into the territory of we feel often disappointed with the measure of God that we have. And there are a variety of ancient practices to make more space for God in our lives and to go who knows how the holidays went? Uh, and who knows how much in view of the time that we're living in, you are still hurting. And you may not be headed into an ascetic practice, but you can still hear in this episode, God is available. And actually, there is there are many parts of your life that he would like to find you in. And they will take some intentionality, Right. That was a big piece of this is that it doesn't happen naturally often. And if we just throw on autopilot, we'll find ourselves in habits that we didn't really want to be doing. So as this year wraps to a close, as this series of old highlights come to a close, we look forward to bringing you new content next week. And we hope you enjoy this interview with James Baxter. When chaos comes, it's a chance to be initiated. You know, thinking that the United States and its ideas in church have come closest to reflecting reality is like thinking Iceland is the basketball capital of the world. It's actually a psychological disorder. F-O-M-O. Fear of missing out. When a man becomes who he was made to be by God, every day is adventure. Sam and I are having a feud about whether or not we should introduce ourselves on the Ensign's podcast. I don't know who the Sam guy is. Probably and me. Sounds like me. I just want you all to know that I think it's important that you know who we are. But I figure you've been listening, and if you haven't... If you're new, I'm Blaine. And I'm Sam. And welcome to the Ensign's podcast. This week we sat down with James Baxter, who is responsible for the Exodus 90 program that is centered around asceticism, prayer, fraternity... And basically bringing you back to Jesus and pulling you away from the things that are getting in the way of that. So, you know, we have some things in common here on the Ensign podcast. We know the story of the frog 
uh, being slowly heated and that if you heat the water slowly enough, a frog won't jump out. You can actually boil a frog that way. And that uh, our own suffering can act like that, where we adopt practices, thought patterns, lifestyles that just very slowly cook our souls. And Exodus 90 is around a radical detox and extraction from ways of life that are toxic to human beings. There's a lot to be had in this podcast, sort of everything from where does ascetic practice come from to uh, what would the life look like that's actually going to produce joy for a person. Yeah, so I think if you're really just interested in knowing more about asceticism and where that Christian roots come from, this is going to be an interesting podcast for you. And if you're somebody who's like, I don't know, feeling dissatisfied with the the chips and the, the sports games and the evenings and you're looking for like more life, there might be some answers here for you too. So Enjoy the episode. James, thanks for jumping on the show today. We're excited to talk about Exodus 90 and asceticism. Hey, it's a privilege. I'm, I'm pumped to be here and uh, excited for our, our conversation this morning. So appreciate your time. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a conversation that I think a lot of guys are going to benefit from, to be quite honest, um, myself included. I actually have to get kind of like the, the ignoramus out of the room. This is sort of silly, and I hope I'm not the only one like this, but asceticism and aesthetics... These words actually end up running into each other. And so I do want to begin with what do we mean when we say asceticism and where did that come from for people that um, may have a hard time of hearing or may confuse and switch those words and um, denial might be easier. So uh, asceticism, can you begin to just break down that concept for us? Yes. So it's really important at the front to kind of make a distinction between uh, asceticism uh, and it's kind of Christian connotations and just being an ascetic, uh, which kind of tends to have kind of a, a you know, a, a very kind of willful sort of kind of self-reliant posture or point of emphasis. Um, it is true, right? That at, at, at the very root of the word asceticism is the same term ascetic. And, uh, that's Greek, right? It means, uh, training exercise typically has a bodily component, uh, in the literature, it's frequently um, kind of used uh, for athletes, um, you know, but uh, really with the, the sort of the Christian tradition and the relationship with Christ and the need for self-mastery and saying, saying no, it, it has certainly a, a higher meaning. And so we had a really real decision at the front when we were launching Exodus 90, do we try to redefine a term that for so many people they don't know what it means, or they have a negative connotation of the word. And, you know, we thought that it was important when we look at the scriptures, when we look at the church fathers, when we look at the desert fathers in particular, uh, the practice of asceticism is part and parcel with being a disciple of Jesus. And just because we've gotten away from the ascetic tradition, it's important to, to go back to the roots. It's important to go back to the, to the origin. So what's the distinction worth making is that uh, asceticism is, yes, about growing in your own kind of self-mastery, your own ability to choose, um, but it's not merely just about you. You know, it's about saying no to say yes to, to God. It has a higher component to it than, than mere kind of willfulness. These are really helpful. These are really good distinctions. I, I, I also appreciate the fact that you guys were like, 
This is going to be an uphill battle with the word, but really the whole thing is going to be kind of an uphill battle to convince people to say, yeah, like not being comfortable all the time sounds like something I want to sign up for for several months. So way to just say, way to own the fact that it's, it's a difficult thing. Yeah. And I think it speaks deeply to the heart of men, right? Who I think, uh, especially, um, I, you know, coming from a Catholic background, uh, our church is full of dispensations right now, kind of making things easier to kind of accommodate the time. And uh, we were like, you know what, at the very least, this is a hearty challenge to, to status quo Catholicism. And uh, to be honest with you, there's so many men who come through the, the 90 day experience that are just like, thank you for challenging me. Thank you for, um, yeah, not, not pandering to what I want. And uh, for once, just drawing very firm, concrete lines for me in the sand and uh, just seeing what, what happens. And, um, you know, so, so yeah, it's a decision we made early on, obviously through prayer and discernment. Um, but it has really, you know, kind of awoken something within the heart of the men through our program that, yeah, you know what, this is brutal. This is hard, uh, but uh, it's worth it. The, the, the struggle of this is worth it. Mm. So you talked about uh, Mark making a distinction between Greek asceticism and then asceticism as it was understood and incorporated by the early Christian church. What were the church's early assumptions about asceticism? As in, so, you know, pushing the Greeks further off the table, how would the Desert Fathers frame it? Right. So I think part of this is just taking a look at the scriptures as they are. And even within the first chapters of Genesis, you see this command to not eat, you know, of the tree of, of knowledge of good and evil. Uh, it's so interesting that even within the first few sentences of, you know, what we know to be the creation of man, that there's this command to not do something. There's a command to, to say no, to avoid, you know, something. And then obviously we, you know, Adam chooses to, uh, you know, follow Eve and, and, and not protect her and, and, and to, to go against the command of God to, to, and, and obviously punishment follows that. And when we follow the tradition and the scriptures all the way down, there's the summons, yes, to say yes to many things, but also to say no to many other things. So I, I think it's important to not just say that, you know, we see asceticism only in the Greeks, you know, but, but, but really you know, much more broadly, there's this need within the very nature of man to say no to things that aren't so good for us uh, and to keep, you know, to stay obedient uh, to God. I think, uh, you know, obviously in Christ, he's so blunt about the need to say no, you know, the, the need to deny ourselves, to take up our cross daily and to follow after him. Uh, there is nowhere in scriptures that, you know, you know, in reading him that there's this thought, this will be easy for me, or this will, will just be whatever I want. Um, but, you know, there's going to be a real trial and a real sort of purification of faith through trial and through persecution. Um, but we're not going to be up for that challenge if we're not up first to the challenge of just saying no to our own wants and our own desires at times, uh, disordered as, as they may be uh, or not. And so um, I think when we see the, the tradition of the fathers emerge, um, it's so interesting that it was precisely at the time where Christianity became, uh, you know, legal and was becoming sort of, you know, given sort, sort of breath by society to grow 
that Anthony just throws everything away to leave for the desert because he saw, you know, a sort of, yeah, you know, a legalization of Christianity is probably a positive thing for, the, for, for culture, but, you know, he saw in martyrdom par excellence, the, the, the vocation of a Christian. And so at a time when it, you know, should have been easiest uh, to say, yes, he flees for the desert and sort of, you know, through his commitment to self-denial, through his commitment to prayer, uh, through his commitment to, to, to what looks like a very austere and extreme life, he finds so much fruitfulness. And, and, and even his biographer, St. Athanasius, says that, you know, the deserts became cities because of Anthony, you know, and so uh, it's ultimately the Desert Fathers and, and, and much of monasticism that emerges from this sort of, uh, you know, tradition of asceticism in Christianity. And uh, all that's to say that, um, you know, I think what the early Christians realized is that Christ is very, very clear about the need to deny ourselves. And uh, that takes different forms for different people in different states of life and different vocations. But asceticism is not an option, you know, for a Christian. And uh, that's pretty clear face at face value, I think, from from the words of Jesus. Okay, so a lot of this is really smack down some of the things that we believe um, about the ways that culture gets in with comfort and lulls you into this state of being that it's actually pretty detached from yourself, from your family, from God. And it's this, it is really comfortable. It is hard to get out of. And ideas like denying yourself things, um, limiting things, actually, it just feels like every year that gets harder and harder to do. And uh, it does amaze me that back in the Roman Empire, this was still a worthwhile need you're like, sure, like, come on, you guys, your dental hygiene was nowhere near what it is today. And yet that's, that was still, still seen as something that was going on. Um, I feel like I also now want to make a distinction. We've done like the, the Greek versus the Christian. There's the Christian versus the Buddhist as well, because there's a lot of um, trendy friends on Facebook who like the denial, cutting things off, but it ends there. It really is about about cutting things off and having this denial, whereas I would assume, and I would say from experience, the the denial and the saying no to things from the Christian perspective is to create a space to say yes to something else. Can you talk a little bit about that? Can you flesh some about the differences there? Um, I'm assuming in your program as well, you're not just removing things, removing patterns, but you're also encouraging men to implement a few things. Like what's the importance of that? Yeah, for sure. So I'm no expert in, in Buddhism at all, but uh, you know, the distinction you've made there is, is essential, right? We talk to our guys about this all the time that it's like, yeah, this can be really exciting to finally take a grip on your life and to remove some of your distractions. Um, you know, whether that's technology or food or whatever it is, um, but that's not just to do that. It's certainly not just to, to lose these things that you're attached to. Uh, it's certainly not just to, to, to lose your identity and, and just be, you know, in some sort of state of denial or, or, or detachment. It's precisely so that we can then say yes, as you've said, to, that we can attach ourselves uh, to God, you know. And for most of our guys, they're married with children. And so for, for them, what does it look like? It looks like a sort of new presence, a new availability, you know, to God in their prayer. You know, and so that's a huge practice through Exodus is, is really kind of pushing men wherever they're at in their, their, their walk, wherever they are, just say, hey, 
prayer can be deeper for you, you know, if you make yourself more available, you know, and so that's the first practice. But from there, you know, from your prayer, it flows that, yeah, you know, there's a call to be, be present, more present, you know, to, to, to your wife and, and, and to your child, more focused at work, um, you know, and, and, and whatever volunteer or, or, or things that at church that are going on. And so it, it's not even, you know, I think you, asceticism as it should be understood is, is not even primarily about saying no. You know, it's about putting ourselves in a place where we can finally say yes again, um, where perhaps before we were kind of dull and, 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 and just kind of whitewashed and just kind of, you know, with, with a glaze over our eyes, uh, frankly, unfree to say yes to the things that we're supposed to say yes to. I, d- I love that it actually, like the fruit of the thing is the opposite of what you would expect, right? Like if you said, you can have anything you want, anytime you want, and live as comfortable a rhythm as possible. And the actual fruit of that is this whitewashed, malaise, detached, disconnect. And the opposite, denying certain things and your comfort isn't the ultimate goal, actually brings you more present, makes you more connected. Like I, I don't know, just people can chase the wrong thing all day long. And I, part of me kind of darkly appreciates that. No, I think if anyone's honest with their experience, it's, it's hard to get something you want and then to get it and realize like, man, that's not even what I wanted, you know? And then, uh, you know, what we should do in front of that is learn from that. But no, so no, it's the, it's the other thing. thing. It's the next want. new thing. <laughs> what do you, right. if, if it doesn't work, I just kind of, right. I, maybe I need two of those things now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, uh, I'm reading a little book by, a. Uh, a priest named Jacques Philippe. Uh, and uh, one of the things he says, like, you, you know, you've really arrived at freedom when you have nothing else to lose, which is to say, like, you're not just seeking to gain, you know, anything in, in particular, um, you know, and so, you know, it's so true. And I think anyone, if they're honest with their experience, finds that pretty quickly, you know, whether that's in their friends or in their own life, um, getting what we want all the time, which modernity does an incredibly good job at, at doing for us, uh, corporations make a ton of money making things more comfortable, more easy, more on demand. Um, yeah, I mean, we find ourselves, and I think, in a pretty unsatisfied society for that reason. Um, Absolutely. You know, whereas even a hundred years ago, there were so many more opportunities for uncomfort, denial, sacrifice, um, and I think you know a distinguishing mark of of, of Christians and and just I suppose men of of goodwill is this ability to even amid comfort say no to voluntarily take on sufferings and sacrifices that unfortunately uh, are getting harder and harder to to find if we could turn for a minute down a little cul-de-sac you know when you meet anyone with a worldview more or less at odds with the dominant worldview uh, there's going to be a story there I'm just curious about, in your story, you probably weren't born interested in asceticism and Christian asceticism. Where, for you, did the study of this practice come in? Yeah. Yeah, so I uh, I went to the seminary to study to be a priest uh, right out of high school at the age of 18. Um. So just as an experience, so what's something I've said no to? Um, 
I'm a, I'm a little bit different, I think, from a lot of people because when when you think about being a priest at the age of 18, most guys are like, gosh, I would never want to do that. Like, I want to be married or, and I want to have a family or I want this profession or, you know, or whatever it was. To me, that really attracted me, this call to sacrifice. And one of the things that was so interesting for me in my own journey, in my own relationship with Christ was the farther I got in the seminary, the more I realized, like, I'm not calling you to do this. And it took me a long time to accept that. <laughs> And to let it go, uh, to then sort of venture out, if you will. So in my own experience, um, maybe it's a little bit counterintuitive, but it's making that sacrifice of what I thought, you know, would, would, would mean, you know, the closest relationship with Christ. And in saying no to, to what was right in, in front of me in many ways, uh, it's opened me up to an abundant life, a, a life I really didn't anticipate and, uh, you know, a lot of joy. You know, what lands me here is this, this, this whole Exodus 90 uh, exercise, you know, a, a mentor of mine kind of made it up. You know, he, he was assigned as a, uh, uh, I guess I would, you know, his title formally was kind of the director of human formation for guys in the seminary. And I wasn't at his seminary, but what he realized was that these guys on their way through, on their way to ordination were just as unfree as guys out in the world, stuck in addiction, stuck in all kinds of complacency. And uh, it was his kind of devotion to the Desert Fathers and, and just kind of really trying to address their needs that this whole sort of exercise was born. And so what was interesting for me, it would at a, at a point in my life where I had to say kind of no to what was in front of me and at, at the summons of the Lord, he's like, hey, I want you to share this roadmap with other men, like, you know, laymen, men that aren't in the seminary, that don't have the luxury of a call. And let's see what let's, let's see what will happen, you know. And so um, – from my experience, then this sort of exercise and the roadmap for it was handed to me and it, and it was up to me to kind of figure out how to package it and then to share it with as many men as I could. And I've been doing that for, for five years now, but I assure you, it wouldn't have resonated with me so much if I hadn't sacrificed as much as I had. Um, and, um, you know, praise God for what he's done and the wonders that he's worked uh, because uh it wasn't a, a story I anticipated or even something that to me seemed super intuitive. Um, but uh, it's been beautiful. I, that's very helpful because from the outside, it can it really does seem like there are certain people who are constitutionally better suited to a life with God. And just, I can think of friends who I've had where I go, yeah, but you like all the things that a life with God requires. You're just kind of a spiritual organism. But then watching them go, actually, they're going to have to sacrifice as much, be transformed as much. There's no, there's not a shortcut out of no. uh, the transformation that's necessary to actually like, grow into the man God intends. Exodus 90, right. um, pretty sure there's only like 40 chapters in Exodus. What's with the name? Just as a just as an asterisk point. Yeah. So uh, the whole walk is through the book of Exodus. So every day, you know, you're reading through that scripture with meditation and you have action items to accomplish in a fraternity. And we'll get to the fraternity component later, maybe. Uh, but uh, obviously, there, you're right. There's not 90 chapters. So uh, the significance of 90 comes from uh, basically, uh, you know, and, and I wouldn't say the literature on this is dogmatic, but this priest in the seminary was really trying to deal with the problem of all these guys' addictions. And in his research, what he continued to find was this point of emphasis on the significance of three months. 
about 90 days for, for the rewiring of the brain to occur so that if a behavior is abstained from, new pathways in the brain can form that are hopefully healthier and happier, you know, behaviors that are, you know, walking with God and not leading us to sin. So um, that was kind of the thought for it. And, and to be honest with you, it's not like he conducted a bunch of research on that. Um, but what he found after, so he, he, he made these journeys like uh, for over three years with guys and the success for these seminarians was overwhelming for them. Many, many, many of them considered it to be the most critical part of their formation to be a priest. And some of them said that they wouldn't have been able to be priests had they not gone through this experience because afterwards, after this 90 days of intensity, they were changed, you know, kind of on a, on a, on a chemical level and they would have said so they were different and they couldn't even, they were astonished at their own change. Uh, so 90 is, is, is rooted in, uh, you know, kind of that thought that, you know, it takes a period of time, a long time for us to really change. Uh, and let's, let's frame that in a way that's a concrete way for, for men to follow. Uh, and you know, it's really a, a beautiful thing for us that men do break decades of addiction, whether that's to pornography, substance, substances, um, other changes are maybe less, uh, you know, profound, I suppose, but uh, it does happen, um, you know, and it's, it's not magic. We don't pretend it to be magic, um, but at the very least, it's, a, it's an adequate time as a step towards recovery for those in the throes of addictions beforehand. So uh, that's where 90 comes from. As an anecdote, like the 90 seems both difficult and attainable. Uh, like I just sit with it. It kind of feels like it's not a 30 day challenge where you can kind of be like, Oh, you're going to be halfway through before you know it. But it's also not a year challenge where I'm just never going to sign up for it. Like there's, there's, there's some thought there. I think it totally is actually threading through partly some of your, your ethos of the program in general. And since we were talking about it, I do want to dive a little bit more into the practicals. We've talked about asceticism. We've talked about the, the reasons, the ideas, um, break down for me a little bit more of like what, what a daily weekly rhythm would look like, um, for a guy doing the Exodus 90 program. Yeah, for sure. So Exodus has, uh, basically three components, prayer, asceticism, uh, and fraternity. You know, and, and what we like to say is if you're not taking the prayer seriously or any of the other parts seriously, you're, you're not really doing this and it's not going to result uh, in what you're looking for. Uh, so our men come to this experience for all kinds of different reasons. Um, but the, you know, kind of the overarching thing is they want some kind of greater freedom. Um, they know that they're stuck. They know that they've got a, you know, a glaze over their eyes. They know that they're not fully present. Uh, and they want something more, you know, from their life. So that's why they come. Um, so prayer, we encourage all the men through Exodus to do a daily holy hour. And uh, that can seem like a lot uh, for some guys, especially if they don't have pr daily prayer rhythms. Um, but the thing we like to talk about around here is that the Ignatian spiritual exercises, uh, you know, from St. Ignatius, founder of the Jesuits, is a really intense retreat, you know, with hours of daily prayer. And the truth is that you didn't go to the spiritual exercises with your prayer life figured out, but to build your prayer life. It was 16-year-old boys discerning their vocations that went through the exercises. And if they can pray for hours a day, certainly we can make time for at least an hour. So within that prayer frame of an hour a day, we say at least 20 minutes should be in silence. So no scripture, 
you know, no, no rosary, no, you know, whatever other devotion you have, just sit there, relate with, with the Father, the Son, or the Spirit, and just begin to at least put yourself in a place to have a conversation. Now, whether, you know, whatever graces come, that's not on you. You can't create that. You can't manufacture that. Place yourself before God for at least 20 minutes in silence in reception. Uh, so that, that prayer part is, is critical uh, for this to, you know, really have any value, any eternal value anyway. Uh, so the asceticism part is really what, you know, folks talk about a lot, uh, mostly because asceticism is profoundly underemphasized in modern Christianity. Uh, so during Exodus, you take cold showers, you practice regular intense exercise, we encourage our guys to get a full night's sleep, abstain from alcohol, desserts, sweets, eating between meals, uh, from soda or any sweetened drinks. Uh, Technology is a big thing during Exodus, so you refrain from television movies or televised sports or from video games. Uh, the whole thought there is like, you know, if you even look at what leisure really means, we don't actually think that leisure happens in technology or on technology in any way. And so uh, what we try to do is just gonna return guys to, to reading books, to silent time, to, to, you know, to conversations, to board games, those kinds of very basic human things uh, and, and off of, um, you know, screens, frankly. So during Exodus, you only listen to music that lifts your soul to God. And you, you only use your, your, your technology for your work or your school. Uh, and then on Wednesdays and Fridays, we, we fast. So uh, we basically, every, uh, you know, as Catholics, we, on, on Ash Wednesday and Good Friday, we abstain from meat and only eat one full meal and then two smaller meals that don't equal the size of the one meal. So that's kind of the definition that's given to us by the church. So uh, during Exodus 90, every Wednesday and every Friday, you uh, fast uh, like that. Some guys choose to... To, to only do bread and water. Some guys choose to not eat anything at all, but uh, at the very least Wednesdays and Fridays are serious fast days. Uh, so that kind of is the ascetic, you know, dimension of Exodus 90. And then it, concluding, it's super important for this, but uh, Exodus cannot be done alone. This is not a self-help program. Uh, we don't believe in that. We strongly discourage it everywhere, only because the fraternity component is so powerful. You know, being accountable to men in your area, you know, who are on the journey with you is, is just a profound experience because uh, there are many ups and downs during Exodus. You have falls, you, you know, whatever, um, you get distracted, you get off the program for a little bit. It's so important to be confronted and to be accountable to your brother who's making this journey with you. And uh, it's so powerful to see God's action in another in a way that can inspire you, you know, to greater faithfulness to, to the regiment. So, um, you know, within that fraternity, so you meet every week, it's a fraternity, and there's a structure to that meeting that's pretty liturgical, actually. Um, but there's a time for kind of a self-report and kind of a group report as well. Uh, in addition, you are assigned kind of an anchor uh, partner uh, that you're supposed to check in with every day. Just how's your prayer going? You know, are you making time for prayer? You know, what, what challenge, you know, what disciplines are you struggling with? Um, so anyway, all of these things, prayer, asceticism, fraternity are part of Exodus. Um, and it's really not the whole experience, you know, if you're missing any component. Um, but uh, it's kind of what makes it what it is. Wow. Whoo-wee. It's so good. Man, there are a couple points that I want to return to. And what you just said, I'm trying to work through an order here. You said that if you look at, uh, I don't know if you said a definition or the practice of leisure, screens do not count. Would you say more about that? What is it? What is your definition of or understanding of leisure? 
and then what is it about technology, certain forms of technology that are exclusive to leisure? Yeah, so this is hijacking Joseph Pieper, leisure, the basis of culture. Um, at, at its essence, right, when we leisure, in a way, we sort of receive, you know, reality in a way that leads to profound gratitude and, um, you know, kind of, you know, with kind of a wellspring of, of joy comes up. There's a sort of correspondence between you as a person and the gift of what's in front of you, the gift of reality. Um, screens, technology, you know, there's a lots of things we can accomplish. There's a lots of tools that in a way can be created, but what's unfortunate is when we mistake, um, a tool for a sort of end and, um, you know, we can just get, get kind of lost, waste a lot of time. I don't know anyone with a smartphone who hasn't had the experience of just feeling stuck, not knowing why they're there. And uh, I don't know if I've ever heard of anyone in front of a mountain or in front of the ocean with a feeling of being stuck, but, but it's sort of uh, an experience of correspondence between who they are and the gift of what's in front of them. So um, again, it's, you know, I suppose there's probably stronger technology critics than me, because again, I do believe there's some pretty amazing things that can be done. Um, but it's important to remember that, um, you know, that's, that's not, you know, what we mean by leisure. That's not a sort of, you know, sort of the receptive kind of wellspring experience uh, of being in leisure, of receiving reality and receiving yourself and the sort of gift between you as a subject and the object of reality. Um, that, that, that experience cannot happen in front of a screen. Uh, and so uh, that can happen with another, that can happen in nature, but uh, that's not going to happen uh, and if, with with pixels, frankly, yeah, <laughs> we're with, we're just with you. I'm just, I'm just like, excuse just, me while I go into my echo chamber. <laughs> that's very persuasive. Well, it's also one of those things of like that's what you're currently using, probably, and it's not working. So why are you going to keep trying the same things if they're not working? Like you're going to keep banging your head against the wall for how long? Uh, another big piece of this is the fraternity aspect, and though it's it's like a, it's an area that I think a lot of young guys experience longing and disappointment and frustration. Um, we're a little bit more familiar with it in like the, the Protestant evangelical world of small groups since like we were six years old, it feels like. Um, sure. but that I'd love for you to flesh out a little bit more of the the heart behind why this doesn't get walked out on its own, why that's not even possible. And some of like the fruit of partnering with other men in this process. Sure. I I think the first thing I would say is um, my experience growing up in Catholicism was without small groups. (laughs) And so uh, to be honest with you, when we were pitching Exodus at the start or really trying to translate it from a seminary program out into the world, uh, it was Protestants who were super excited about Exodus 90, and Catholics were like, why would we get together in small groups? Or like, is there, you know, why is that the case? So it was really kind of an interesting experience. So in many ways, Exodus 90, because it's coming from a Catholic frame, um, we're building small group infrastructures and Catholicism that don't exist. Um, I think the thing that's so beautiful about Exodus is that 
it's not just a Bible study. It's not even primarily about learning. It's, 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 it's very profoundly about friendship and a, a place of accountability with others who are also walking. Um, so, you know, our, our groups, you know, when you ask them afterwards, like what was the, you know, the best part about it? So many times they'll, they'll talk about their friendships and they'll talk about being known and they'll talk about not feeling like there's darkness in their life because they're accountable in the places that they need to be accountable with. And that's a, that's a powerful experience to know that you're not running from anything. You're not hiding anything. Uh, you're known by others, even if everything's not figured out. Uh, and so, you know, it's just a, yeah, it's a powerful sort of dynamic there. And so when you show up to the group, it's, you know, it's all about your life. It's all about what God's doing in your life. Uh, and that's a, a powerful experience for guys who many times, their only experience of community or fraternity was on a sports team long time ago, you know, or, or you know, or, or in high school or whatever it was. Sure. Um, and so bringing that into the faith and then bringing that walk into normal life, uh, it's just a pretty powerful experience uh, for the men. So good. So the Exodus 90 program represents this radical, structured, productive, ascetic, prayer, fraternity experience. And, you know, it reminds me a recent book on escaping from or um, getting your freedom back from a digital age, Cal Newport's book, Digital Minimalism. One of the things that he explains in the beginning is tweaks, tinkering doesn't work. You always have to begin with a radical detox and it has to be long and it has to be uh, harder than you think because Tinkering will never change your defaults, but following like a detox, there's it, you can change the way that you live. The question there is for you and for guys who kind of go through this concentrated experience, how does incorporating ascetic practice into your life after look like, or when you're sort of done with at Exodus 90, what are some of the ways that your normal life ends up being markedly different? Uh, I do think that kind of profound you know, period of intensity is essential. That's true in our experience, and that's true kind of observing thousands of men through this at this point. Uh, we have uh, kind of newly begun exercises after Exodus that actually take men all the way through the narrative books of the Bible, kind of walking them through salvation history. And what our men do is as they're encountering new scriptures um, and the narrative of, of salvation history and how their life is sort of, uh, you know, at play within the story of, of salvation history, even today, is that we ask them to take on different ascetic practices for different periods of time. Uh, none of them are as intense as the initial 90-day, you know, sort of you know, purification, if you will. Um, but the thought that after Exodus, you can just go back to not praying or go back to not mortifying your flesh, it makes zero sense to men after Exodus 90. What they so often say is like, I thought that this was a 90-day program. And when I was done, I realized that this is what my new normal needs to be. So it's not the same necessary, necessarily the same intensity, um, but a life without asceticism or a life without prayer or a life without accountability is not the good life. I don't want that life. Uh, so anyway, uh, we kind of provide a structure for guys to, to sort of keep with, you know, keep their fraternities going, keep their reading of scripture going, 
uh, keep their, you know, aesthetic practice going. Um, but whether or not men choose those ongoing exercises, what's essential is that those parts remain, uh, even if, the, you know, there's a, you know, a difference in, in that the intensity of that experience. The only other thing I would say is like, this is baked into the very frame of the liturgical calendar, right? Uh, you know, with Advent and with Lent, you know, we receive a profound gift, a sort of retuning, okay, like, let's drop some of these things that are in our ways. Uh, and let's, you know, attune ourselves spiritually to, you know, the incarnation, to the resurrection. Um, you know, and when we look at certain saints like St. Francis of Assisi, he actually added an additional length into his, his frame uh, for life, you know. And so I think it's so important. Uh, on a recent podcast you guys did, you talked about these periods of fasting and feasting and the sort of interplay that needs to be happening, you know, on an ongoing basis. You talked about how uh, you know, showing up to a bar three days in a row, you know, by the fourth day, there's not going to be a lot of joy there. And it's so true. Uh, so I think at the very least, it's important to respect the calendar of the church, to respect the, the sort of preparatory time that it takes to encounter Christ born, to encounter Christ risen, you know, and then kind of on a, on a personal level, incorporate periods of, uh, of, of fasting and feasting. Uh, and, uh, you know, only then will we, you know, be where we want to be, you know, be free and not get stuck uh, in comfort. You used the phrase, the good life. And part of the hope and what you're talking about is it's easy inside, I think, especially what I'll name Western Christianity, but especially, you know, in the Protestant Christianity I'm familiar with, to view uh a life with God as predominantly intellectual, like God tells you how to think. He gives you assumptions about reality, which is true, and yet limited when you go, does Jesus outline how a person should live in a way that actually leads them to the life, Sabbath, uh, flourishing that is described so vividly, especially like the teachings of Jesus, and to go, oh, what, what you're talking about in adopting these practices is that, yep, in fact, we have like a massive repository of resources in the history of the church in a way of living that will actually lead you into joy, will lead you into a life with God that you want. Part of my being led into fasting practices was Jesus just routinely asking me the question, and and how's it working? Where you know he would suggest a fasting practice, and I'd be like, not interested. And then rather than being like, you have to do it, it'd be like, uh huh. And and how is not denying yourself working for you? And it was like, on frank evaluation, I just had to go, not very well. Like I don't see a kind of flourishing that Christianity describes happening in me on a daily basis. So maybe there is something that needs to change in the way like that I live. Sort of a, like a, almost a landing question here is, the program you have described and that you run, it does sound, when you, when you went through the list of things that you need to deny yourself, it sounds hard. How ordinary are the people that you see go through it? Yeah, that's an awesome question. Uh, one of the great joys is how normal they are. 
uh, guys in the you know in the middle of like professional life, guys in school making their way. Um, it's it's honestly astonishing to me that uh, to be honest with you, a lot of like really traditional hardcore kind of Latin mass Catholics don't necessarily flock to Exodus 90 uh, at all. And in fact, it's just normal modern dudes that just really want more out of their lives that, you know, have been encouraged to pray forever, but they don't know how to, you know, they know they need to deny themselves, but you know, their lengths have not meant anything satisfying for them uh, and guys who are lonely, you know? So um, honestly, that's been one of the great delights and, and one of the greatest privileges of my my role here is, is just meeting our men. And, and it's just, it's amazing to me how within the hustle and bustle of their lives, they make time to do this and to do this well. Uh, you know, it's, you know, the list can sound like a lot, you know, and it can sound like just checking boxes. Um, and sure, you know, maybe if Exodus is a threat to you, you know, that's an easy sort of way to, to frame it and to dismiss it. Um, What's so amazing is that when you remove some of these things, it's astonishing how much time you have. So within the first few weeks of Exodus, there's a lot of joy. There's a lot of excitement. And uh, the thing we hear over and over and over again is I had no idea how much time I had and how much time in the past had just been sucked away from me because I was distracted. Um, you know, and that's something that moves me on a daily basis because what that means is like, yeah, now there's time for God again. Yes, now there's time for your wife again and romancing her and returning to your first love. And yes, there's time to play with the kids again. Um, and that's, that's just amazing. It's amazing to me that, you know, asceticism in conjunction with prayer and accountability, uh, it returns you to, to the essential. It returns to you, you know, what actually matters. And it gets the crap out of our lives that uh, don't need to be there. You know, if we would just accept the fact that they don't have to be there. Well, I think you've got a great new potential tagline, gets the crap out of our lives. Just want to throw that out there. James, this has been really good. Thank you for jumping on. Um, for the guys that are listening, they want to find out more. Where should they go? Absolutely. So uh, exodus90.com, uh, everything is there to get started. So again, this isn't a self-help thing. It's not like you you know, you just get it and do it by yourself. Uh, but uh, it's really about a, a discernment. Most guys, it takes about a year from when they hear about Exodus 90 to actually do the program. Um, and that's okay. That's really normal. It entails a lot and it takes some preparation. So um, there's a lot of testimonials on there from guys, uh, you know, as normal as they are, as wounded as they are, what Exodus has meant to them. And uh, there's also just kind of kind of the history of where this has come from. My favorite part about it all is it's not like we just sat down and thought, like, how can we sell a program to people? Uh, it was a priest trying to meet a need in a seminary, and it's just been astonishing how sharing that roadmap with others has been so visibly fruitful in men's lives uh, across the country and even the world now. Uh, so anyway, uh, all that history is there, which is awesome. Uh, and then you can reach us just at our support team with any questions that you have about uh, implementing Exodus uh, wherever you are. So. Um, it does come from, you know, the Catholic Church, and it does have Catholic influence for sure. Uh, but we've had tons of evangelicals and, and, and others. Uh, actually had a secular group, like totally agnostic group. Not that I thought that that was the way to go about it, but uh, this is attracting a lot of people right now. And um, if it's for you, and even if you're not a Catholic, it's something to, uh, worth taking a look at and uh, praying over and discerning. <laughs> 
That's really good. I am super curious about how the agnostics did the prayer component of the <laughs> program, but uh, you know, everybody's got their their journey, I suppose. You know what? Whatever Jesus needs to do to reel them in. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's a better way of putting it. Well, again, thanks so much, James. This has been really good. Absolutely. Sam Blaine, privileged to be with you guys. Thanks for your ministry, your work, and uh, I, I appreciate you both you know, so much and, and the influence that you are on so many. So uh, it's a real privilege for me to, to be on here and to share my life passion with you guys. <laughs>